arrival, coming, the coming of Christ in the flesh, both in Bethlehem as we um, celebrate this Christmas season of Jesus as a baby in a manger, but also the second coming that we eagerly await. He has both come and he will come again. This week, we will look more closely at the Advent theme of love. And as I've been preparing over the weeks, I can't help but think of the 90s R&B hit by Hathaway. Anybody know where I'm going with this? What is love? <laughs> so, to get us in the spirit, to get us thinking, you know, if we're, if we're looking at this theme in Advent of love, I think we have to ask ourselves, what What actually is love? And if you spent any time maybe growing up in the church or have been in the church for any period of time throughout your life, there's a, oh yes, (laughs) there's a, um, delayed perhaps, not sure. Um, There are a couple of verses that at least for me maybe come to mind when exploring what this concept of love is. The first of which is that God is love. Uh, Maybe you also think of the verse in John, they will know us by our love. Or perhaps um, a couple of verses in Corinthians and Timothy that we are to make love our aim. Any other verses come to mind for you as you think of the scriptures and what it knows of love. Maybe love is patient. Love is kind. Y'all don't know anything about love? Y'all looking at me like deer in headlights. We can talk back, guys. This is okay. We can be engaged this morning. Speak truth in love. Anything else? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. That's good. So this is maybe some things that we think of with what the scripture tells us about love. I also think simultaneously we have to be aware that the culture is constantly discipling us and trying to teach us its view of love. I think the culture tells us that love is primarily desire. It's erotic that love is a feeling, maybe that it's self-seeking, that it's, it's whatever we want. That's what love is, whatever makes me feel better. Or maybe the more ambiguous, love is just love. So with these competing ideologies or maybe definitions of love, I think it's important that for us this morning, before we fully dive into learning about love and seeing where the scriptures, uh, specifically the Advent story, displays it, for us to define this word. Um, in, the, in the past, we've used a definition by um, author and philosopher Dallas Willard, so I'd like to bring us back to that this morning. And he defines love as willing the good of others or to will the good of another. He goes on to say that it's actually not desire at all. Uh, and if you think about maybe an example personally, I love chocolate custard from Freddy's. Am I the only one? I mean, it's a gift from above. And, and I use that word love, I think, in truth, right? I love Freddie's chocolate custard. What I actually mean is I desire to consume that chocolate custard. <laughs> so I want us to be able to distinguish desire from love. To love is to promote the good of that thing or that person for its own sake, not for my own sake. 
I love the chocolate cutter, custard at Freddy's for my own sake until after I eat it and then I don't feel good. But I think I will feel good and thus I love it. That's not actually love. So just wanted to set that stage for us. So as we sit in this Advent season, a season, as I mentioned, of celebrating the coming of Christ, both as a baby in a manger and the reality that Christ will come again, it's my hope that we also sit in or maybe better yet wrestle with this idea of love to will the good of another. In a holiday season that primarily focuses on willing the good of ourselves, be honest, have you guys been looking at like the deals on Black Friday, doing some online shopping? Yeah. If you're like, no, I'm really only shopping for other people, then I'd say you're willing the good of your family and close friends. But really, I don't know that that is the true and real definition of love, because if it's not selfish, you know, we're looking at ourselves this holiday season, then I'd say it's at least conditional. We're looking at those that love us back or that are in our circles, you know? That's at least what I'm seeing around us, that you love those that love you or our family or you simply love yourself this holiday. So this morning, we're going to be looking at two characters in the scriptures here, or two stories primarily. One, a more traditional character in the nativity story, and then another character in the Old Testament that I think really displays uh, love very well. So as we examine these characters, I want us to also examine their character and the way they embody and portray love. So I invite you this morning, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. The first book of the New Testament, as you turn there with me, I just wanted to remind you that last week we looked at hope, and we specifically looked at Mary's hopeful response um, to God's plan, and specifically the virgin birth. This week, we're going to consider the perspective of Joseph in the matter. So if last week we looked at Luke 1, and that was kind of through the eyes of Mary, this week we're going to look at Matthew 1, primarily through the eyes of Joseph. Is everybody there? Yeah? Okay. Well, before we look at this text, I want you guys to know that I have studied the past couple weeks um, just content around the character of Joseph. Last week, Spencer referenced a book by Fleming Rutledge. Um, The book is called Advent. Anybody go look into it? I think he challenged us to go check it out. 400 dense pages of collected sermons and writings on Advent. And after I scoured the entire book, all 400 pages, all 400, I found one sentence with Joseph referenced in it one time. So I want you guys to know he is definitely the most popular character of Advent, and we are definitely checking him out. It became fairly obvious that Joseph, for the most part, was overlooked and understudied throughout the birth and maybe even the life of Jesus. But I believe that these few short verses reveal something to us that's both powerful and applicable as we search for what it means to be a people of love. So let's read together Matthew chapter 1. We're going to skip all that fun genealogy. And go down to verse 18. Let's read together. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. 
But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, we believe that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And as we explore what it means to imitate you as the author of love, we ask you to open our eyes and ears for what you have for us this morning. And all God's people said, amen. So let's recap what we just read. Perhaps a new story to you, perhaps a story you've heard so many times you could say it with your eyes closed. But we see here a um, little bit of a situation where Mary and Joseph are um, in what's known as like a betrothal period. Maybe a little bit similar to like an engagement for us, but a little more contractually binding. Um, And they would have already referred to each other in this period as husband and wife, but they had not yet... um, like Mary had not been invited into his home to consummate the marriage. So there was a period of time, this betrothal period before the marriage was consummated and they lived together as one, but they were still referred to as husband and wife. So that's the situation we're um, sitting in. It's been thought that they lived in two separate places. So there was, um, I guess, mentally or in the minds of folks, there was no way that Joseph would have caused this. In a betrothal period, they would not have been allowed to be alone together. So both Joseph Joseph knew in his own heart, and also anyone in the public would know, okay, Mary's starting to get a little baby bump, and Joseph lives a couple hours away. Something's getting fishy, right? So that's the situation here. Um, I hate to bring my own, you know, childhood into this, but I am imagining Jerry Springer playing on the TV in the living room, and the results are in, you know what I mean? Like, that is the environment that we are currently in. And so Joseph, we see, instead of divorcing and disgracing her publicly, which would have been probably the most appropriate or the most normal thing for him to do, goes a different route. So I want us to look at what I consider to be three aspects of Joseph's character that I pulled from this text that I also think is applicable to us, not just in this Advent season as we are pressing into this theme of love, but also applicable to us for the weeks and months and years ahead as we embody the love of the Father. The first thing that I noticed about Joseph is he listens to God. To go back to the text, it goes through all that um, he was considering because of the situation. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, and the angel of the Lord gave him that information, when Joseph woke up from the dream, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. 
Now, I don't know if there was a time period in between what happened in the text, but from what I read, he had a dream, and he woke up, and he immediately responded in obedience. He listened to Yahweh. And, and when, I, when I put the word listen, I was like, that doesn't feel like it quite does it justice. Like sometimes we hear things, but it doesn't really prompt us to act on it. What Joseph heard, he immediately uh, was prompted to act in obedience. That listening had an action component to it. Undoubtedly, Joseph was misunderstood in this decision. You have to assume, right? I mean, we just talked about Jerry Springer. We know that the bump is starting to show, but he's across town. Something's not adding up here. Perhaps he was looked down upon. But it seemed like as long as God, as long as Yahweh had spoken, the opinions of others mattered very little to Joseph. He knew what he had to do. He had an allegiance to Yahweh. He woke up and did what the angel of the Lord commanded him. That prompts me to ask this morning, what is the Lord asking of you? Whether it's come through a dream, whether it's come through a wrestling internally in your spirit, whether it's come through the voice of another believer, have you listened? Have you responded with obedience? And note that this this vertical allegiance that Joseph has is the first character trait. It's the first thing that I see in the scriptures. He immediately obeys, listens and obeys right off the bat. Second, I would say that I see Joseph extending compassion to Mary. He did not divorce her even when he had every right to. He takes her in, and he didn't just, like, take her in, like, oh, here's this pregnant woman who I could, you know, honestly, my decision could create, uh, not my decision, but really her decision and my response to it could push her to be an outcast in society, not just her, but her son as well. Like, I am in a position here to really um, make or break the future of this woman. So he could have said, you know, through the power of of God and what he's asked of me, I'm just going to take care of her until she has the child, and then I'm going to let her go on on her way. Like, that's that's enough, right? No, there's a covenant promise that he enters into here, a long-term relationship. Compassion actually means with suffering. Calm is with and passion is suffering. It's almost as if Joseph is suffering alongside of Mary in the way that the Lord has altered their futures together. I also noticed that if you like go up a little bit above where I read in verse 16. It goes through this entire lineage of all these different people. Um, From the best of my knowledge, it looks like all masculine names. And then you get to Joseph, who it refers to as the husband of Mary. What a great title, right? All these masculine, powerful men in this patriarchal society. And then Joseph's role is to literally just husband Mary. Wow. I feel like in entering in suffering alongside of her, he he does more than just forgives her. 
He participates in restoration. And when you think about the word restoration and restore, he's restoring the outcome. He's changing the outcome for Mary. But in a maybe unfortunate way, it changes his own story and outcome too. He almost is um, denigrated perhaps in society, like his role as a man and his family lineage, because now he has come into a story where he's not actually the father. He was stripped of that right. He participates in restoration so heavily that it elevates Mary potentially to a position above himself. In Fleming Rutledge's book, there was so much about Mary. And I found one sentence with Joseph's name one time, and it literally was like, Mary and Joseph and Jesus were, you know, at the nativity story together. Like that was the extent of the content. Yay, Fleming. (laughs) So who is in your sphere of influence that needs mercy, that needs compassion extended to them? Who has the Lord placed in your life that you can suffer alongside this Advent season? If Joseph listening to God was a vertical component of obedience, then I would say Joseph extending compassion to Mary was a horizontal component of obedience. That through that vertical obedience, you then are prompted and compelled into horizontal obedience as well. A second person who experiences the... um, beauty and gift of love through that horizontal obedience is Jesus. Joseph chooses Jesus as well. As I mentioned, he signs up to take care of Jesus, even though this is not his child. He brings him in and adopts him with the same attachment a parent would have. He takes him in as his own, He's present, and he invests over time in this child's life for the entirety of his fatherhood. As I mentioned earlier, he was stripped of this parental pride as Christ's son. He didn't get that. Do you guys realize, like, Mary gets to be the mother of Christ Jesus, and Joseph is just Joseph, maybe stepdad at best, you know? This society was paternalistic, it was patriarchal. Every aspect of the economy and the structures would have flown through the father's lineage. You see jobs and titles passed down through the father's lineage. And yet, this isn't Jesus's real dad. But Joseph chooses him. He still invests without the credit. In my opinion, it seems like Joseph is giving up and sacrificing a lot, but he's getting very little in return. This, my friends, I feel is an exercise of love, that there's listening, there's obedience, that there's compassion, that you were joining in suffering alongside of another, and that you're choosing them. This is what it means to will the good of someone else, to join them and to choose them, all prompted by the obedience to the Father. That's the root and stem of it all. 
I hope that as we're examining the character of Joseph, we're allowing the Holy Spirit to poke at areas and people in our lives that perhaps we are being asked to will the good of. The truth is we have like these habits and social patterns that have shaped us and who we are. And it's normal for us and it's normal for the world around us. It's just kind of where we've arrived when we showed up today. If, if we uh, are cursed by someone, we're taught to curse them back. And if we're struck by someone, we're taught to strike them back. I mean, if, if you guys grew up in a public high school and there's a fight happening Everybody, it, the person in the middle is like, you know, hit me first, right? Because once you throw that first shot, I'm coming for you. Because then my mom's not going to get mad at me because you hit me first, right? Because once I'm hit, I get to hit back. That's society, that's the society that we have grown up in. So these habits have to be reformed by consciously practicing contrary loving responses until they become habitual, until they become our habits. And this retraining requires that the new conditions be put in place and be cultivated. We then can develop to a place where when we're rejected, when we're abused, when we're mistreated, our mind and our body will respond not with the automatic, okay, I'll curse and reject and harm and mistreat them back, but instead our body responds with, okay, here's a person in need of blessings. And this is how we can will the good of another. And we can know that that's what the Lord calls us to that it's because of Yahweh, it's because of Jesus that we put aside what society has trained us in and instead look above that to will the good of the person in front of us. I know for many of us, there's like, there's a but here. Like there's that one person or that one thing, but I just can't love so-and-so. Anybody like would be bold enough to be like, okay, there's the one, the one situation that I'm like, oh, I just don't know. Y'all don't have those situations. Thank you. Three people are being honest because I've got like a line of people's names and situations and I'm like, it's all good until this happens. And then it's just not good anymore. For those of us thinking through that, I would say this is a cue that we are working at the wrong level. It's not that we just try to love someone, but that we try to become the kind of person who would love them. So our aim should not just be to love this person or that person or this situation or that situation, but to be a person possessed by love. And then we get to take that overall character into every situation that we enter in. I think Dallas Willard, who I mentioned earlier, really puts it best. He has a six-page letter titled, Getting Love Right, and he says, we don't go to our enemy, then try to love them. We come to our enemies as a loving person. Love is not a faucet to be turned on or off at will. God doesn't just love me or you. He is love. That is his identity, and that explains why he loves us even when he's not pleased with us. I'm going to say that again. That explains why he loves us even when he's not pleased with us. We are both called and enabled to love as God loves in this way. Not to turn off and on our love like a faucet, 
That's the conditional love that I mentioned earlier. But to live as a person of love, to live in that identity and for it to um, overtake us in a way that we then get to bring that identity with us in every situation to every person. Now I want to look in an Old Testament character that I feel um, displays love in a beautiful and interesting and countercultural way as well. The name of this character is Mephibosheth. Y'all can't make that stuff up, you know? Like, do you ever read the names in the Bible and you're like, who came up with that? Mephibosheth. If any families have a kid and name them Mephibosheth, I don't know. Don't come back. No, I'm just kidding. I'm joking. You can come back. Okay. You're going to turn in your Bibles. Just want to make sure y'all were listening. To 2 Samuel chapter 9. Please don't be ashamed to check out the table of contents. 2 Samuel chapter 9. And as you're turning there, I have um, Jordan's creation of a family tree that we're going to put up on the screen here for me to talk through exactly, I guess, a little bit of context for some of the names that we're going to see in this passage. So King Saul was Israel's first king. He had several sons. One of those sons was Jonathan, so one of the several. And then Jonathan had a child, a son, by the name of of Mephibosheth. Told you you can't make that stuff up. Um, Not necessarily related, but the second king of Israel was King David, and he and Jonathan at one point were close friends. This is Jordan's family tree. It's much more extensive in real life, but I wanted to give you guys a little bit of context for the names that we're going to be looking at. Before we dive in, you should know that Saul and his sons, including Jonathan, died in a battle at Mount Gilboa, and at that time, Mephibosheth was only five years old. Now, as custom in that time, when a king would be, I guess, killed and then moved out of leadership and hierarchy, when the new king was coming in, which was King David, it was custom for the entire house and family to pack up and flee because usually the new king would kill the entire family of the old king. Any descendants left in the lineage would be killed for the sake of maybe cleaning house and starting fresh, let's say. So Mephibosheth was five years old, his nurse picks him up as they're fleeing and drops him, and he injures both feet, making him lame. So that's a little bit of background. Are you guys ready? Is everybody at 2 Samuel chapter 9? Yes. Starting in verse 3, we're going to read together. The king, which was David, asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amel in Lodabar, which means land of nothing. So King David had him brought from Lodabar. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan... Um, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. 
Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And a couple of verses later in verse 13, it says, And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. I love how they didn't want you to forget there that he still was lame in both feet. So I gave you guys the background. I know it's a lot, but I hope you're following. That um, Can we go back to my made-up family tree? That there was King Saul... First king, he had a couple of sons. One was Jonathan. These two had just died in the battle. It prompted a new king to come into place, King David. And a 15-year gap passed between my background that I gave you and the text that we just read. So for about 15 years, Mephibosheth was hiding in this land called Lodabar, the land of nothing. He was fleeing to try to honestly not be killed. So here sits a man, lame in both feet, hiding for his life, and he's been doing so for the last 15 years, probably waiting for someone to come and to take him to his death. Instead, we see King David do something different. He inquires about these descendants, but instead of planning to kill the king's previous line, which as I mentioned was custom in these days, David wanted to honor them. Very unheard of. Very, very unheard of. He, Mephibosheth would have been considered an enemy. He lives in this place called the land of nothing. He's lame in both feet, which would have meant he would have been an outcast in society. Useless. It wasn't his fault, but it's still his reality, right? He even considers himself a dead dog. He says, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Once again, I see David in a similar way as Joseph offering to restory the outcome of Mephibosheth. In restoration, he uh, as a tool, an instrument of Yahweh gets to change the outcome of this person's situation. Looking back at the text, he originally says, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul whom I can show God's kindness? We see that vertical obedience, as I mentioned earlier. We want to show God's kindness. We want to extend grace where maybe it isn't due, where it isn't expected and it hasn't been asked. But God wants me to prompt or or respond in obedience and prompts me to share this kindness. And then later we see him mention, I think it was verse 7, don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. Again, we see this horizontal component. The Lord has prompted me, and through my relationship with Jonathan, I'm, I'm prompted outward as well. This horizontal reconciliation, I now uh, seek to give the kindness and the love of the Father to Jonathan and his descendants, which includes Mephibosheth. Eating at the king's table meant not only enjoying the best food in the country, but also falling under the royal protection as a friend of the ruler. 
So here we see Mephibosheth going from hiding. And just put yourself in these shoes. Like, I don't think my um, exposition of this text is doing it justice, guys. Like, he was in the king's courts living a life of luxury. And at five years old, he doesn't know what's going on, but a battle happens. His family gets killed and his nurse picks him up and runs. And then he loses his ability to walk. And for 15 years, he sits in hiding. And now, because of the love of King David, he gets to enjoy the best food in the country and sit under the royal protection of the king. He went from fear to sitting in the most protected place. Mephibosheth referred to himself as a dead dog, but he lived in Jerusalem and ate at the king's tables like one of David's sons. He may have lost one father, but it seems that he gained another. I have a picture here that I found in my studies that um, I thought was beautiful and depicted the scenery of a table set with two crutches. Because despite how his scenario changed, he's still a man lame in both feet that's coming to the table to feast. In this room, I can only assume that some of us see ourselves in some of the characters that we've explored today. Maybe you're one of the characters that um, doesn't feel that they're deserving of love. You're Mephibosheth, you're a dog. You'll show up, but you don't really expect much more than that. Perhaps you're Joseph. You're looking at this mess around you in life, and you're hearing the Lord ask you to stand mercy and compassion. Maybe you don't want to. Maybe he's asking you to take in someone that society is pushing away. Maybe it's a colleague that gets on everyone's nerves, a student that no one likes, a family member that the rest of the family literally groans when they enter for Christmas dinner. Perhaps it's an actual child. Maybe you've been wrestling with a pull to foster or offer care and open up your home. Maybe you've been wrestling about keeping the child that's within you. Maybe you feel you've been entrusted with more than you're capable of caring for. After all, you're just a carpenter. You're just getting by. Maybe you find yourself in a painful time this Advent season. The love of the Father meets you there. His redemption doesn't leave you there. Maybe those around you are in pain. And maybe there's someone who needs perhaps an invitation to be let in into your life, into your home, around your table. Is the Lord pressing? Does your schedule need interrupting? Does your wallet need inconveniencing? How can you will the good of another this Advent season? Maybe instead you see yourself in David's role. You have power, you have privilege, and you have authority. Through obedience, maybe the Lord is prompting you to use that for good, for his good. 
Yet you wrestle because that's not really how it should be. That person should have to go to work. After all, you work too. It's not what they deserve. They're getting what they deserve, right? I've heard before that it can be seen what you love by looking at your bank statement and your calendar. That where you spend your time and your money truly point to what you love. What do you love this morning? If me or a friend examined those two spaces, what would they find? As the Jones family lit the love candle this morning, they referenced John 15 where Jesus says, This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way that I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for a friend. This morning, friends, we sit under both the truth and the victory that the same king that was awaited for many years and born in a manger suffered a public and a painful death on a cross for the sake of each one of us in this room. And honestly, for the sake of many others who aren't in this room. He suffered for those of great need and those of great wealth, those with plenty of company and those who are lonely, those who steal and kill and those who are victimized and hurt. He suffered for them all. And this morning we're faced with an invitation. As much as we don't deserve it, and I promise you we don't, the table has been set and the meal has been prepared. The king invites us to dine at his table. You are loved by God. He loves you. He chooses you. He invites you. And he provides for you and sustains you. I'm going to invite up some folks um, from our leadership team that are going to host you at the king's table this morning.